I'd invite you to open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to go back to the beginning of Luke. Uh, we didn't get it all right the first time, so we're just going to start over this morning. So my congregation last Sunday was much smaller than I'm preaching to, so I'm a little nervous this morning. Last week I was with pre-K, uh, so it was me and Cassie uh, teaching two pre-Kers, so it was much uh, less stressful. You guys are a lot more scary. Uh, actually, pre-K can be scary. So last week we got to hear from Andres, and he was teaching on this passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And as we read a story like that, we see Jesus feed the 5,000, but he feeds the 5,000 in such a Jesus-like way. Here's what I mean by that. It's quite possible that Jesus just could have fed 5,000 on his own, but he doesn't. And it's the kindness of Jesus that he involves his friends in the work of feeding 5,000 people. How is this kind? Consider these things. Uh, Over the course of any given week, it feels in our home like we feed 5,000 people. It's not quite true, but with the number of meals and the number of people and animals living in our home, it feels like there's about 5,000 meals or so fed. But here's what happens. Our groceries run out. We need to replenish. We need to meal plan. There's a whole system that goes in place to make that happen. Uh, With Jesus, it was a whole lot different. What happened with Jesus is that the food kept coming. So I want you to imagine for a second you're a disciple, and not only is a miracle taking place in your midst, but you begin to realize a miracle is taking place by your own hands. And so what a kindness and what a marvel for these disciples to have this lodge in their brain. They also grew in their understanding that day that the kingdom of God relies on outside resources, not on what you have. Imagine one of the disciples going, I just don't know if I have what it takes to feed all these people. Uh, If you've been around guys, I have three brothers and I hang around guys a lot. Someone would have punched him in the arm and said, shut up. Like, shut Of course, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. This isn't about you. Like, just keep obeying. Like, just, just keep doing what Jesus is telling you. Keep handing the food out. This isn't about you. The kingdom of God relies on outside resources, not what's within us. Uh, think about this, that the lesson of this true joy, Jesus said, serve one another, serve others first, consider other people's needs as more important than yourselves. Imagine how this lesson lodged that day. If it was the end of a long ministry day, I guarantee you the disciples were hungry too. What did Jesus tell them? You feed them. So as they kept giving and giving and giving and giving, I love how Andres put it last week, they all end up with a huge doggy bag. There's 12 baskets of food left over. Guess what? You still get your fill. We serve a God of generosity, not a God of scarcity. So that lesson had to have lodged that day in their brain. And then lastly, I thought about this. They learned that when Jesus asks the impossible, we must be thinking too small. If it seems impossible to us, we must be not be thinking on God's terms. What did Jesus tell them to do? You feed them. And so their vision was expanded. So what we read about last week, the account was a miracle. Miracles in the Bible are signs. They aren't just wowy moments for us. They're signs that point to something greater. Now, there are beneficiaries to the miracle that day. There were people there that filled their stomachs and benefited from the miracle that took place, right? But signs are pointers. Signs actually communicate something different. It wasn't just for people to see in the moment, wow, a miracle just took place amongst us. It was a sign pointing to the bread of life. 
The greater sign is that it's pointing to Jesus, who fulfills all of our appetites for all of eternity. So not only does it benefit those who are there, it benefits those who were not first-hand witnesses. And that's going to play really important this morning of what we look at. Here's a question that comes up regularly. Who is Jesus and who can really know the answer to that question? Watch for it this spring. Uh, watch for it around Christmas time. For sure during those two times, there are many, many opinions on who Jesus is in, in newsprint, on web articles, on little documentaries, that sort of thing. Who is Jesus and who can really know for sure? And we live in a bit of a condescending age and a condescending part of the country as to having certainty on, on this question. In fact, some find it absolutely arrogant to say that you can know for certain anything. Now, here's what's kind of curious, um, is they sometimes go on to contradict themselves with the following statement. You cannot know anything for certain. To which you're sitting there scratching your head going... Do you know that for certain? Like that's a self-defeating claim, isn't that right? If you can know nothing for certain, then making the bold assertion that you can not know anything for certain is a certainty. So it's a self-defeating claim. All truth claims, hear me clearly, we say this often in church, it needs to be repeated often. All truth claims must be tested. That's true whether you're sitting in a church, whether you're sitting at a political rally, or whether you're about to go buy a used car. All truth claims must be tested. Now, a truth teller may be humble or arrogant. It doesn't change the value of the truth that they might be speaking forth. Truth is still truth, whether it's delivered in a very humble, winsome way or whether it's delivered in a, in a bold and actually somewhat arrogant way. Conversely, a liar, a falsehood, whether it's presented poorly or whether it is presented in a flamboyant way that's very exuberant, is still a lie and must not be trusted. It's the fool that goes after that way of thinking and that way of living. Look around you and think about this. Ideas have consequences. The Bible puts it in farming terms. You plant a seed in one season, it yields some kind of a harvest. Ideas have consequences. All of this to get back to this. Who is Jesus and who can really know the answer to that? Let me say this. I know who Jesus is for sure and I know that other people can know with certainty who Jesus is, but I don't get to choose who those people are. I know who Jesus is with utter certainty, and I know it's knowable for other people to know who Jesus is, but I don't get to make the decision of who that is. Uh, revelation. So apart from Revelation, uh, I would have no idea who Jesus is. We're going to read a passage today that you would not have come up with. You would not think about as this is how the Son of God actually is. But it's been revealed to us. There's also something called spiritual sight. Spiritual sight is something that I didn't purchase and I can't grant to any other living human being. Let me talk about Revelation just for a second. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I hope you're there. Luke tells us really specifically his method and his motive for writing. Ready? Here it is. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. A couple of quick observations. Much had already been written and discussed about Jesus. Luke felt impressed that more needed to be said. It wasn't complete. That means there's much written about Jesus and discussed about Jesus in his contemporary time that wasn't accurate, or if all was said that could be said and was accurate, he would have let it rest. Does that make sense? The same is true today. Much is written. That means it's going to take you to sift through what's true and what's false. Secondly, second observation is that events have been fulfilled or accomplished in our midst. Here's what's important about that. Luke is not just writing history. What is Luke's profession, people? He's a doctor. He didn't just go, you know what, I missed my calling. I should have been a historian. Let's just write about things that have happened in the past. He's not simply writing down history. He is writing down what has been accomplished, what has been fulfilled, fulfilled out of stirring your mind prophecy, that things were promised long ago. They are being accomplished among us. That's why he wrote. He also writes carefully, orderly, um, having evidence from eyewitnesses for a very clear purpose. Why is he writing? So that you, Theophilus, who's Theophilus? He's probably a benefactor, uh, but he's, he's writing it for this person. And he's writing it so that Theophilus, think about this, a non-present person to the events recorded in Luke may be certain of the truth claims of Jesus. Who are we? We are people, we are individuals who were not present at the transfiguration, which we're about to read. We were not present at the feeding of of the 5,000. We weren't present at the birth of Jesus Christ. So Luke is writing, yes, for Theophilus, but here in the providence of God, we are able to gain clarity and certainty about the things being written, about the truth claims of Jesus Christ, even though we weren't present. And by the way, this is true for all historical evidence that you're ever required. You have to sift through evidence to figure out if Chuck tells me he ate a tuna sandwich on Mount Umanum yesterday. If I wasn't there, I would actually use some very similar logical things. I can't say, who can ever know that? Who could possibly know if that's true? Well, I could go through some things and have some, some certainty about whether or not I believe that to be true. So this is for us today. That's the revelation part. Here's the spiritual sight part. The spiritual sight is from God. Let me read for you a couple of confusing things. Paul said some confusing things. He wrote much of the New Testament. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. He says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, before you just blindly go, yes, that's so deep, that's so good. Think about that. Paul's telling you to look at things, not at what you can see, but what you can't see. Does that make any sense? Not at first pass. Not if you're being intellectually honest. You go, that, that sounds like just mumbo jumbo. People, look at what you can't see. Okay. What? Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 
always interpret the Bible with the Bible. What does Jesus have to say about spiritual sight? Here's what Jesus said in John 3. Truly, truly, this is important. No, 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 I mean really important. That's what truly, truly means. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, that's beginning to shape a little bit about spiritual sight. Paul clarifies his own confusion earlier, or his own potentially confusion, by writing in 1 Corinthians 2 the following words. And this grabs in Jesus' idea too. Here it is, ready? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Can we agree that um, revelation is there and is, and is absolutely vital. Otherwise, we're all left with equal valid guesses as to what God's like, right? So revelation is a key piece. Revelation alone isn't enough. How many people have had Bibles for much of their life and they, they, they didn't believe? How many today have access to a Bible in a church? They've heard the revelation. They don't believe. What is it? It's the natural person. It's foolishness to them. It doesn't make any sense to them. Unless God grants us spiritual sight to see, revelation alone is not enough. Jesus said it this way in sort of code. If you have ears to hear, listen up. Hey, for those of you with eyes to see, I'm going to show you something. And people went away scratching their head, totally confused by it. Others had their lives utterly transformed. So as we look at God today, uh, my, my role as a preacher every single week is to just keep, is just keep lifting up Jesus, just keep lifting up God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, and just keep, let's keep looking at him together. And the scriptures reveal that to us. Today, not only is the Bible going to give you clear answers as to the question, who is Jesus and who can know, but a second huge one that looms large for every human being, whether they admit it or not. Ready? Here it is. What is beyond the grave? And who can really know? Okay? Those are two questions that our, our text is going gonna, is gonna to deal with. The series title for this has been called The Good Doctor. It gets to the heart of Luke's intent, and it shows off Jesus in some really clear ways. What is Luke's intent? That we would know for sure that Jesus is, in fact, God, his chosen one, and that he's, he's hidden, he's kind of concealed in a body and, and roaming the earth on this rescue mission for this season of time. The whole idea of good refers to, um, refers to his character. Two key passages out of Luke that are kind of been like pillars for us. Luke 18, 19 says this, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Remember someone comes and says, Hey, good teacher. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Note what he's doing here. He's not saying, I'm not good. Don't call me good. That's not what he's saying. He's actually revealing the person's ignorance. The only person you can call good is God. Now, as a sneaky little fun way, God is built into the word good. Do you see it? Once it's shown to you, it's really hard to unsee that. But if you weren't really looking, and because we have really old projectors, it's kind of hard to see. It's not like something that you can see. There's a little bit of that uh, in, the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly is the idea of doctor. The good doctor, the doctor part refers to his work, his mission, the thing that he accomplished from the Father. What was that? Luke 19.10, Jesus gives his own answer to why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ is good. He doesn't just do good thing, things. He embodies goodness because he's God. And he's here for a very clear purpose, to seek and to save the lost. 
All doctors require faith. They ask you to trust them with your life. But like all doctors, Jesus, as the good doctor, the ultimate doctor, does not require, hear me, or even want your blind faith. That is not what he requires. It's not what he's asking for. No doctor that you would entrust yourself to would be shocked if you say, can you give me some credentials? Why should I trust you before I go undergo the knife with you? Is there a second opinion I could get? If he just says, just trust me, what do you do to those doctors? Run. Like, run. And then yelp them and do bad things. Like, just say, don't, don't go to this person. They were deeply offended when I asked a couple of clarifying questions. Jesus not only offers his hand to say, trust me, but he gives you reasons to trust him. So church, let me tell you my prayer for this morning. My prayer for this morning for my own self and for each one of us as Christians and as seekers is say, God, would you help us to see what you have for us? Would you reveal yourself to us? And I recognize this is a spiritual work. Here's how I'm going to do this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write these three, da- three things down, but I'm going to kind of give you, I'm going to walk you through a little bit of an outline. But what I want to do this morning is this. I want to simply re- uh, read this passage. This, this passage this morning uh, reveals Jesus uh, sort of who, who the good doctor really is in a very powerful way. There's been a lot of incremental things. This is one of those that sort of shoots us forward. Um, the transfiguration, which we're about to read, is a bit like a preview. It's a little sneak peek into some things that are coming. This glory that we're going to see in Jesus for all of eternity, there's sort of a little glimpse of it here. What I want to do is, is this. I want to read this passage, and then I am going to remain quiet for about a minute. I don't want you to be stressed for me and go, oh my goodness, Dave, Dave really is nervous. He just forgot what he's going to say. I'm going to read and I'm going to sit quiet. I have been pondering this passage silently for the whole week. And so what I want to do is I want to read it and let us just sit in this sanctuary amidst other seekers and just let the weight of it, let the glory of it um, so, sort of sit on us, okay? So please follow along. It's important to look at it, I think, at least for me. My learning style is to open it up and just stare at what we're, what we're talking about. God, right now, would you, as we read your holy word, we recognize, God, that the words that I speak in commentary are so peripheral, they're so side, they're transient, I pray they be helpful, but God, what we're about to do is read something that has stood the test of time and will stand the test of all eternity. And so, God, I pray that you would dial us in, free us from distraction, help us to listen attentively. In Jesus' good name, amen. Starting in verse 28 of Luke 9. So flip over to Luke 9 now. Sorry, I didn't tell you that earlier. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Remember, Jesus just fed the 5,000, had a discussion with them about his identity. And then it says this. Now, about eight days later, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were, who were heavy with sleep, um, I'm sorry, now, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. One commentator, I think, captured the heart of sort of the weight of coming up and speaking on this or writing a commentary on this passage. Um, And that is there are certain passages of Scripture you'd rather just let sit. And you wonder, like, what what could I add to that? Um, So recognize it's it's with fear and trembling and humility that I just want to give a few thoughts and comments around this. I've kind of shaped this morning by saying that the transfiguration is a sneak peek at three things. And some of you English majors or just astute people are like, oh my goodness, he spelled peak wrong. It's not spelled wrong, it's a double ring. A double ring is just, just there's two truths here, okay? It's a, little, uh, it's a little thing that we can grab hold of and have some fun with. To peak, P-E-E-K, is to look, right? Have a little look at something. What is a P-E-A-K? It's the top of a mountain, Pike's Peak, right? Um, so they have gone up to this mountain, and they've had this incredible vision of who Jesus is for a moment. It's just a brief moment. So in essence, think about this as sneak peek, right? This is not Pike's Peak, it's sneak peek. It's a little, it's a little moment of time where, where God sort of pulled back the veil and said, here's who Jesus is. So they're sort of on sneak peek. So... Transfiguration is a sneak peek first at the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. It's the true identity of who Jesus is. So I started just opening this question, who is Jesus and who can really know? Luke's been tracking this idea, this vital question, since before the birth of Jesus Christ, since prophecy leading up to it. But most recently, let me take you back just a couple of weeks as we've been walking through it in the sermons. Um, who do the crowds say that, that Jesus is, right? The latest poll, the, the common conventional wisdom, is often wrong. Um, you know, wrong, <clears throat> They just keep saying, well, some say this, and some say that, and some say this. Hear me. Um, I keep a pulse on this. The pulse on much of what I read about Jesus, much of what the Bible says, much of what Christians believe is wrong. Shockingly wrong. If I ever watch an airline movie with my pilot father-in-law, I go, Dad, is that really how it is? And he's like, nothing like it is. All the rest of us are like, wow, that's what 777s can do. They can do a loop, whatever, right? Those in the know just go, you can spot it a a, a second, you know, just like a, a mile away. Much of what is written, the conventional wisdom is wrong. How about Herod? Ben brought this up in his message. He asked this question, who is this? What did his top advisors do? They just confused him with multiple choice. No definitive answer. What did he do about it? 
Looks like he let it just sit. He didn't go find out himself. He just sort of sat in his ignorance. Who can really know? How about the disciples? Think about the disciples in the boat. They're in a boat with Jesus. It's not a very big boat. And all of a sudden he becomes the storm whisperer and everything quiets down and they listen to him. And it ends that passage with this. Who is this? Like, who's in our boat? The weather just obeyed his, his command. So they're asking this question, even though they're, they're around him and, cl- and close with him. And then last week, Peter makes this declaration, but he isn't even overly sure what he's talking about yet. In chapter 9, verse 20, he, he says, you're the Christ of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It means you are the chosen one, you're the promised one, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ of God. It was an accurate statement, but it was still incomplete in Peter's mind as to who Jesus is. God the Father settles this in very plain language for each of us today. Everyone's got their opinion. A voice from heaven, God the Father, settles the matter with this. This is my son, my chosen one. That's who Jesus is. How do we know? God told us. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now this occurred all in the context of prayer. This was as he, Jesus, was praying. You ever wonder what Jesus was praying about? The Bible doesn't tell us. But what did Jesus' prayer sound like in this moment? What was he praying for? Now we don't really know. But he could have been praying, you know, hey, Abba, how are Moses and Elijah doing? Poof! All of a sudden, he's chatting with them. Maybe he's praying for his disciples and thinking about all that's coming up. And thinking about sort of the the turmoil that his close, dear friends, his sheep, are about to go through. And maybe he's providing, maybe he's saying, God, would you give them just a peek? Like, not for my glory's sake, not for my, I don't need to to be confirmed, but would you give them just a peek at who I am? We don't know what Jesus was praying, but something occurred in a moment as Jesus was praying here on a mountaintop. Jesus is unveiled. Think about all these superhero movies that are out right now. Each one of them, uh, maybe this isn't true. Some of you are real geeks about this. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. But almost all of them seem to have this double identity, right? I'll go to Superman because I, 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 know, I know that one well. Um, but there's, 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 there's a, a persona that people think about who the, that person is. And there's, there's, there's more than meets the eye, right? And in some of the Spider-Mans that are going on, there's like, you know, you, you let a friend in or you get to kind of peek in. And, 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 and there's like little tiny glimpses. And as the audience... Movie makers and storytellers have a lot of fun with that. Well, what's going on here in essence is there's this little peek to Peter, James, and John about who the identity of Jesus is. It's as if God the Father is saying, watch this, and just kind of gives a little tiny glimpse. Luke is telling us that another important turning point is coming. Can you think back to the last time that Luke said he, that, that, that an audible voice of God the Father was heard? It was at his baptism. Jesus lived for a long time in, in almost total obscurity. And then the baptism of Jesus is this marker. It's the start of his public ministry. And what does God say to the Son at his baptism? He speaks directly to Jesus. You 
are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And everyone else got to listen in. Uh, Let me tell you this, parents. This is what your kids long to hear from you, particularly dads. They need to hear that you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And I am well pleased in you just by just by your being, not by what you do to disappoint or please me. God gives this stamp of approval and affection publicly at the very start of Jesus' ministry. And what Luke is telling us is, this isn't the second time Jesus prayed. Jesus lived a life of prayer. But he's noting that in the context of prayer, another powerful shift is about to happen. It's happening right now, in fact. The voice of God is now speaking, notice not to Jesus, but he's actually speaking to those who are present. Who's that? Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John. Five people. And what he says is this, this Jesus is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. What's going to take place, I'll tell you where we're going in Luke. We are now going to take a road trip to Jerusalem. In a few short verses, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. What's going to happen at Jerusalem? The fulfillment of God's plan. Ultimately, he's going to suffer and die a grim death. And he's going to rise again. So a significant shift is happening here. By the way, disciples almost missed one of the most amazing scenes in Scripture. Why? Because they were sleeping. Man, this preaches to me. This preaches to my heart. It says, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke, they saw Jesus' glory and two men standing with them. You ever wake up and be like... What? Like, am I really, am I awake still or not? Some of you are slow waker uppers. You could nudge someone if you need to. But you just, you're, you're not really clear if you're still in that dream state or not. Can you imagine waking up and seeing what these guys saw? Here's a principle for my life. You can too. Don't miss out, Christian, on the glory because you're asleep. Don't miss out on the glory passing before you happening right in your midst because you're asleep. You may not be physically asleep, but you may be spiritually asleep. You may be mentally asleep. You may be so entertaining yourself to death that you might as well be asleep. You might be a zombie and missing out on the glory that God is accomplishing all around you. Let me give you a quick composite picture that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us about the transfiguration. So if you take their three descriptions, here's what you have going on, if you can get this in your mind. This change, this transfiguring uh, happened, and this brightness was from within. So it wasn't a spotlight from outside on Jesus. It was actually uh, brightness emanating from Jesus. That's different. It would be one thing to have a light shining down. It's another thing to have it glowing from within. This, this brightness, the clothing in himself personally, was pure as snow, described as majestic as lightning, and, it, and the appearance actually changed his clothing as well. So what they saw is a preview of Jesus in all his glory, but it's something else. It's also a preview of life after death. So if you want to write this down, the second thing is the transfiguration is a sneak peek at life beyond the grave. You've probably thought this before, and you've probably heard this said before. Who can possibly 
know what happens to people when they die? How can you possibly know what happens to people when they die? The answer is simple. It's those people who read Heaven is for Real. If you read Heaven is for Real, you'll know the answer. I'm kidding. Please, please don't do that. Please don't think I'm being serious. Here's how you can know. You can know because of the following things. Friends of Jesus who are with him when he is having a conversation of people who've already lived their time on earth and died long ago. In other words, people from history. Do you see that Peter and the disciples, Peter and the others who are with him recognize that this is Moses and Elijah? The Bible's not crystal clear on how that is, but here he is talking, having a conversation with people from history. So not only is the unveiled glory of Jesus astounding, so is the fact that they witness Moses and Elijah as men having a conversation. They are alive and well. They are coherent and real. It's just as Jesus would continue to teach and then to model that this life and this body that we wear for a season is not the end. That this is not all that there is. This makes such an incredible impact on these three disciples that we hear it from their own words. Okay, just jot these down. John chapter 1 verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. How about Peter? Write down 2 Peter 1. 16 to 18. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18 says this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now there's a big composite picture of who Jesus is. The feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, just the words of life that are being offered on a regular basis. But I can't help but think that this is a, a powerful launch forward when he says we have seen his majesty with our own eyes that he was thinking about about this in fact i can say that because the text goes on to say this it says for we received honor and glory from god the father listen to this when the voice came from the majestic glory saying this is my son whom i love and with him i am well pleased what's he talking about the baptism of jesus christ watch this Verse 18, very next verse. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. What's he talking about? The transfiguration. God the Father spoke. We heard testimony about it, but then we were there at sneak peek at the transfiguration mountain. We heard it ourselves. This majesty is not cleverly devised stories. We are not just passing on hearsay. We are eyewitnesses to what's going on. These two that wrote, John and Peter, would follow Jesus to their own death. We don't know this from biblical account, but tradition, very reliable historical evidence, says that not only was Peter uh, subject to crucifixion, but he asked that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord and Savior. So they staked their very life on it to the very end of their life. You know what changes you? It's when you hear the voice of God saying, this is my son, listen to him. (laughs) Okay, that lesson sticks. I will never, ever, ever, ever forget that. 
And it shows up not only in his own words, but in his lifestyle. Lastly, the transfiguration is a sneak peek at the end of the battle. One of the things you'll know about me um, is that I really hate hearing the score of a game or the winner of an event that I have DVR'd that I'm going to watch later. Hear me publicly. I don't get to watch sports as they happen. Ever. I preach on Sunday, so what's that do to my football watching? It pushes it later. Um, I have lots of children that bedtime takes a long time. You know when I watch sports? I watch sports when I'm dead tired at 10 p.m. So, if you want to be my friend, don't text me the score of my favorite team and who won. Don't do this. Don't say, I'm not going to tell you the score, but it's a really, really good game. Make sure you watch it to the end. Yeah! Here's what I try to do. I'm out in public. Becky knows this about me. If there's a Sharks playoff game happening, I, I'm a guy. I can't help but see the sports screens on. I can't help. I'm like, I don't care about curling, but there's sports on TV. My eyes go there. I position myself in a restaurant where I'm not facing TVs ever because I want to give my attention to my bride. But there are times when I see a sports score flash up. There are times when I'm going to hit my DVR and my TV channel is on the evening news and the split second that I'm going... I'm like, are you kidding me? You ever try to unsee a score? I, I j- this is so weird about me. I try to un... I, I go, oh, oh, oh. It's too late. Like, what does that do? I literally do that. I can't unsee who won. I can't unsee your body language when you tell me the Sharks made it past the first round. I say all this because the transfiguration is a sneak peek to the end of the game. I'll tell you what's gone on in this passage. A headline has been boldly declared. If you were to see a picture, if you're an Olympics fan, and you saw someone uh, on three podiums standing in the middle on the highest podium, chomping down on a medal with Olympic rings behind you, would you need any, um, any headline to figure out who's the winner? No. Not at all. Uh, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. Who's on the middle podium? Uh, the one emanating brightness that we can't even look at. That's the winner. Like, we can't unsee that. We know who the winner is. But in case you miss that, there's a massive, bold headline. A voice from God that declares who the winner is. Do you think this would change Peter, James, and John, and then their friends as they march forward towards Jerusalem? Yeah. Does it mean in an instant they fully develop and they're the most bold, courageous disciples? No, we're going to get there. We're going to see that's not the case. But who else, what else did, did Luke write? He wrote the book of Acts. It's part two. As you read the book of Acts, here's a powerful witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The people, the same people in Luke are different people in Acts. They just are. The resurrection put a final stamp. But this is a preview that says Jesus is victorious. Jesus is the winner. So listen to him. When God says that, gives this unforgettable headline that he's the beloved son, he's God's chosen one. He's not just my beloved son. He's the fulfillment of all this I've been doing. He's the center of the plan. What are Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? They're talking about his, de- his departure that will soon be accomplished in Jerusalem. That's crystal clear code for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The culmination of history. The centrality of the cross. The cross is about to occur. And the greater Moses 
is going to lead another kind of exodus. Here's that word departure. It's literally exodus. They're discussing the departure, the exodus of Jesus Christ. And they're not discussing the past great exodus. They're discussing the greater Moses Jesus leading a greater exodus from a greater slave master, not Pharaoh in Egypt, but slavery to sin for all of time. And that's what they're discussing on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when God says that he says to listen to him, this is what Jesus does. He is God's spokesman. Do you hear a message for followers in there? Yeah, this is what we're to do. I mean, what a great, simple boil down of the Christian life. This is Jesus. Listen to him. Let me invite the band to come on up. I want to draw one last thing um, as we're going to shift into communion. As we pass communion, here's what I'd invite you to do. You don't have to be a member of Neighborhood Bible Church to participate in, in communion. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the Lord's Table. This is the Lord's institution. This isn't our institution. However, what I would say is this. If you're a Christian, this is a meaningful thing that Jesus asked his disciples to do. So it's an act of worship. We are listening to Jesus when we remember him by celebrating the Lord's Supper. By the way, think about this. The first exodus... The Israelites would look back on that exodus. They would recount the love of God, the tangible protection and provision of God. They would celebrate feasts and festivals as commanded by God to look back and remember. You know what Christians do? Christians look back on the second exodus. With communion, we look back and remember. But we also look ahead and we say, even so, come. God, we're going to be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for your return. Longing to get to see for ourselves what these, these three disciples got to see in a small peak. As we sing this song, as we ready our hearts for communion, let me draw out one more very important thing. Peter tries to memorialize this glorious moment of worship instead of just enter in and enjoy it. Let me reread this, this portion really quick. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And a voice from heaven says, listen to him. Shh. This was about to end. They were going away. How do we keep this experience going? What is Peter's MO? Quick, Peter, speak. You can think later. Right? That's, that's sort of Peter. So he goes back to something that's, that's theological. It's part of their history, this building of booths or tents. Not knowing what he was saying is this. By building one for each of them, do you see that he's leveling the podium? He puts all three of them on the same level. Elijah and Moses, why are they there? They represent the law and the prophets. All that God has been doing up to this point. And they are here subservient to their Lord and Master. They're not the ones emanating. They're not the ones getting the approval of God. So here's what I would say to us, church. We can do this every time we're in a powerful worship experience. We can do this when God shows up in this powerful conversation and we get to lead someone to the Lord. We can do this with communion. We can take anything and we can think it's about that. Here's the principle. Don't get stuck on some mountaintop experience of worship. And miss what God's doing right now, today. Isn't the kingdom of God now? It's not yesterday. It's not on that mountain or that mountain or let's go make a journey to find God. So it's happening now um, and it's on the move. 
That's why churches, I pray that we are, are an ever-moving, ever-changing church. That we don't just get stuck in how to do things and talk about the good old days, about how God showed up and how we try to keep duplicating it with those things. So as we celebrate communion, be in the, be in the present, be in the here and now. Let me pray. God, as we take these elements and hold them and ponder some things and sing to you, God, would you prepare our hearts? Jesus, you're the spokesman for God. Give us the grace to hear from you, to listen to you this morning even. In Jesus' name, amen.